Jesus, may we be, may you be the one whom our hearts hunger for. As we come presently before you for the presentation of the word of God this morning, would you open our ears and our hearts to hear what it is that you want to speak to us? God, that we would have clarity as to how your Holy Spirit is moving and working in our lives to the glory of your name on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, make little of myself this morning so that you would make much of yourself and that you would receive every bit of glory to which you are due. It's in your precious name we pray, O Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I have a question for you. How many of you have ever read, and I, and I want to say read, Les Miserables? Anybody ever actually read the, the novel Les Miserables? One person? Two people? It's massive, by the way. If you didn't know, it's really big. Uh, and I have not read it. <laughs> I have not taken the time to read it. So anyone that has, like, great on you. <laughs> like, did you read it in French? Yeah, right, okay. <laughs> right, right. Um, I have never read it. But I leave it to the playwrights in order to make the story clear to me and to inform me what the novel is actually about. And though I haven't read it, uh, there's this one place within the story that resonates so loudly with me. I did watch the 2012 adaptation of Les Miserables with uh, like Anne Hathaway and Hugh Jackman. Fantastic movie. If anyone uh, wants to go watch it after today's service, I, I encourage you to do so. But, but there's this one scene in the movie that has always stuck with me. You see, it's the story of a man named Jean Valjean. And he recently finished serving a 14-year prison sentence for stealing bread for his starving family. And actually, his original sentence was for five years, but he received additional years for every time he tried to escape from prison. But now that he's been released, he finds himself once again in desperate straits. And with nowhere to go, it is pouring down rain. He needs a place to lay his head. He is offered some shelter by none other than a clergyman, Monsignor Bienvenu. My French is terrible, so don't hold it against me. And with no money or any work prospects, Jean Valjean steals the silverware from the parsonage. And as he leaves under the guise of night, he ends up being captured by the local authorities. And Jean Valjean is dragged back to the parsonage before 
Monsignor Bienvenu to be confronted for his wrongdoing of stealing the silverware. Mind you, it's real silver silverware, not just like the stainless steel stuff we have today. And as he stands, or actually as he kneels before Bienvenu, Bienvenu, instead of confirming the crime to the local authorities, sees this event as an opportunity to either condemn the life of Jean Valjean or to save it. And so, Bienvenu chooses the latter. He tells the authorities that this silverware was not stolen, but in fact given to Jean Valjean in order to sell that he might be able to create an honorable life for himself and that the authorities should release him from his shackles and be on their way. And as the authorities depart, Monsignor Bienvenu looks at Jean Valjean. And of course, it's a musical, so he sings it, but I'm not going to do that before you today. And he says, forget not. Never forget that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother. You belong no longer to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Man, that just gives me chills. Like, those are some powerful words spoken in the midst of an opportunity where the Monsignor could have just condemned him right back to prison. But instead, Bienvenu releases Jean Valjean. In fact, he actually adds to him. I forgot to mention that in addition to the silverware he stole, when they come back and the authorities in tow, Bienvenu says, you forgot the candlesticks the most expensive of the things that I was going to give to you. You forgot the candlesticks. So he hands these candlesticks to Jean Valjean. Bienvenu releases him. Instead of giving him what he deserved, which was a moment of judgment and condemnation, you see, in my own life, I can remember so many times that a wrong I had committed, that instead of receiving what I deserved, whether it was some sort of punishment or another, like my parents' favorite go-tos was you're grounded, or, you know, you, know, you need a spanking, or, you know, like I'm taking away the video games, that was probably the worst one, because if I was grounded, I was in my room with video games. But if they took away the video games, then I had nothing. But somehow, 
there are so many times that when I deserve those things, I didn't receive them. I don't know, maybe it was they woke up on the right side of the bed that day. Who knows, right? But I'm sure upon reflection in each of your own lives, you can recall or recount at least some time where you have received the same, where maybe you've committed a wrong, you were guilty of something, and instead of being punished, you were released from your punishment. You didn't receive what you deserved. I actually remember this one time that I was working in this Christian bookstore, and one of the many duties that we had to do was imprint Bibles. Like, people would buy a Bible, and then they would want their name imprinted on the Bible in, like, gold leaf so that everybody knew, this is my Bible. It's not your Bible, right? And so I had the opportunity to work at this store, and one of my jobs was to be imprinting Bibles. However... Uh, there was this store rule, I guess you could say, that if you misprinted a Bible, it came out of your wages, which isn't great. And I was new, and I was nervous. And I remember getting this really big, nice, leather-bound family Bible, super expensive And it was like one of the very first Bibles that I had to imprint. And I was like, oh no, can I do this? And so I like set everything and made sure everything was just right. Put the Bible under the imprint machine, went down to draw the lever and imprinted in beautiful gold leaf. The wrong name. (laughs) The wrong name name. And I'm like, great. This $200 Bible is about to come out of my week's wages, which is my entire week's wages. This isn't good. (laughs) But my manager comes up, and I remember so well. He just looked at me, and he said, these things happen. Just grab another, and let's try to get the next one right. And at the end of the week, When I received my paycheck, my wages weren't docked for my mistake, for the thing that I messed up on. Have you ever encountered a boss like that? You ever remember a time where you screwed up, and instead of doing what they should have done, they offered you forgiveness? offered you mercy in the midst of your wrongdoing. And so mercy, as I like to define it, and maybe this is how it's defined. I actually didn't look it up. But this is how I like to define mercy. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Say that again. Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. I deserved to have my paycheck docked, but in my manager's mercy, he did not give me what I deserved by docking my paycheck. Instead, I didn't have to pay for that Bible. I was given another chance. 
We've been walking through these characteristics, these attributes of God as he defines for himself in Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. Then it says this, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, talking to Moses. And, it, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, we've been working through this passage little by little by little. It seems like we're not getting very far, but, but today we're making some progress. We actually started our series by talking about the immutability of God. That is that God is unchanging in his nature. And we began there because I truly believe that if we're going to look at anything that Scripture says about who God is in his own character, then we have to know that it doesn't change. That the God of the Scriptures is the same God today. He's unchanging in every way, shape, and form. We even said it this way, that he can neither, neither get better or worse because he's already perfect is immutable. And then we went forward and we started talking about God's transcendence and his imminence. That is that God is both completely other than his creation, not like it in any way that he is infinite against our finitude, and yet even in God's infiniteness, in his otherness, he chooses to be intimately close with his creation. And there is not a place in creation that he is not present. He's everywhere. And he's closer to me and closer to you than your very skin. He is imminent in his creation and he desires to be involved in his creation, working in us and through us. And so when these two actually come together, transcendence and imminence, we got our next understanding of God. That is his sovereignty. That is that God has the ability to rule over his creation. And we said that he is able to do that because he's all-knowing He's all-powerful, and he's completely free. God is not hindered in any of his ways to direct and ordain his creation. And as such, in acknowledging God's sovereignty, we have been called to live under his lordship, to his rule and will within our lives. To understand God is sovereign is for us to say, Lord, I'm willing to submit me to you because you are infinitely immutable, completely transcendent, but utterly imminent in my life. 
And then we heard from Ina, who gave us a wonderful message on God's steadfast love and faithfulness. That we can trust and believe God in all that he accomplishes because he is faithful to bring it about from the depths of his steadfast love. A love that is unwavering, unchanging, that it cannot go away. It is steadfast. And we are reminded that God is love and therefore calls us into love. That his love cannot fail due to his faithful nature towards his children. And so today we turn toward God being merciful. You know, in the reading of this passage, we actually heard a couplet that God is merciful and gracious. And so next week, we're going to turn our attention to the graciousness of God because they're in the same category, right? That's why they're coupled together. Just like God's steadfast love and faithfulness was a couplet, they're inseparable with their understanding but they are different. And so today I want us to focus on how he is merciful. And then next week we'll turn to how he is gracious. So today, if you wanna turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter three, uh, that's where we're gonna find ourselves. You can also find it on page 801 in your pew Bible if you wanna go ahead and open that up. But we're gonna be reading from Jonah chapter three. But before we read that chapter, we're going to give just a little bit of background. I'm sure we've all heard the story of Jonah before, but just in case we haven't, I want us to understand that Jonah is a prophet of God. And God has come to Jonah and said, hey, Jonah, the people of Nineveh are doing evil before me. And I want you to go to them and let them know that I'm going to bring destruction to them because of their evil ways. Will you go to them, Jonah? And Jonah, in his abundant love for the Ninevites, was like, yes, God, I'm going to go and tell them. No, he doesn't do that. He flees. He's like, God, in no way, shape, or form am I going to go to the Ninevites. I'm not going to tell them that destruction is on their way. I'm not going to be the prophet to let them know that their ways are evil and that they need to turn to you and repent. Absolutely not, because I know what kind of God you are, and I don't want those evil people to receive what you have for them. And so Jonah runs away. He flees. Flees in the opposite direction. He gets on a boat. Then he's on this boat, and then all these things start happening, and the people are like, what is going on? And then they realize that Jonah was fleeing from God, and they're like, uh-uh, you're going overboard. They toss him overboard. And then Jonah gets swallowed by a big fish. Jonah gets swallowed by a big fish, and he's in that fish for three days and three nights. And then Jonah prays. I'm sorry, if I get swallowed by a fish, it's not taking me three days to finally pray. It's taken me about 15 seconds. So I'm gonna be like, Lord, I know I done messed up. Please forgive me and, and let me be spit out. This ain't okay. This ain't okay. But it took him three days, <laughs> three days. And then Jonah repents. He prays to the Lord and he says, God, forgive me. I was disobedient. 
was disobedient. And so the fish spits him out. And that's where we find ourselves. Jonah was just spit out of the fish's mouth. And so we turn to chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah for the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. That is huge. And Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? May God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Notice Right there, when we were talking about that Exodus passage, I told you it shows up again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. And here we have it right now. It is a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's almost a direct quote from Exodus. And then he goes on, and you relented from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? I have to tell you, this is some of the most fascinating scripture in the entire Bible to me. We have a prophet of the Lord who's heard from God what he must do. And because the role of prophets in the Old Testament is to bring warning against the people that they would know that, that God has turned against his people and he's wrathful and angry. And, and the prophets are supposed to give this warning, hey, look, look, this is who you are, but it's not who God has called you to be. And these prophets bring warning and judgment, but done so in hopes that the people would turn back to God. 
It reminds me of Elijah's prayer as he's standing on Mount Carmel and all the people are against him. And it's just Elijah alone up on the mountain making prayer to the Lord. But he says, Lord, do this. Consume this offering that their hearts would be turned back to you. Their hearts would be turned back to you. That the people would see that you are God. And so prophets go into the places where The people have turned their backs on God and are supposed to go in and warn them and let them know, I need to tell you the truth. Prophets are the truth tellers. And Jonah is meant to be a truth teller. And this is so bizarre to me because Jonah doesn't want to be the man he's supposed to be. He's been called to be a mouthpiece for God to bring truth to people that need truth. And he doesn't want to do it. And we learn the reason that Jonah doesn't want to go into Nineveh and proclaim truth is because he knows the character of God. He knows that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and has the steadfast love and faithfulness of a father who wants to draw close to his people, not run away from them. And Jonah, in his own disobedience, runs away. What I think is so fascinating about this passage, too, is as Jonah comes into Nineveh, he immediately goes into the city and begins to proclaim, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And it says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. They acknowledged Jonah to be a prophet. They acknowledged Jonah that he was bringing the word of God to them. And they believed him that it was the voice of God that God was going to do this thing. And so what did they do? They let it happen, right? They just were like, yeah, well, we're going to continue in our evil ways. We want to be guilty. We want to be this way. No. It says that they immediately called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. One thing that I want us to see in this passage, specifically as we look at the difference between Jonah and the people of Nineveh, and the way that they responded to God. Nineveh hears the voice of God and says, I will do this thing because of who you are. And Nineveh doesn't take three days to acknowledge their disobedience. They immediately called for a fast and put on sackcloth and ashes and repented for the wickedness that was in their hearts. It was Quick, that was a terrible snap. There we go. 
It was quick. Jonah, the prophet of God, took three days before he finally acknowledged his disobedience and repented from it. What I want us to take away from that is two things. First, be quick. Be quick to acknowledge the wrongdoing that you have done. Be quick because in quickness, you're opening yourself up for God to move closer to you faster. Our wrongdoing ultimately separates us from God. Not because God removes his eminence from us, but because we build up a barrier within our own hearts to not want to let his presence in. And so the quicker that we move toward repentance, the sooner God can act in his mercy toward us and draw us back into his arms. Jonah had to experience the belly of the fish for three days because he was so slow to repent. Don't be like Jonah. Three days without God is like a lifetime. I heard it once said by um, a man who just really, really loved the Lord. He said, you know, I've been doing this following Jesus thing for 50 years and I highly recommend it. Don't let yourself experience a separation from the greatest thing that was ever offered to you, a friendship with the Lord. And so Nineveh turns immediately. They put on sackcloth and ashes And I want us to notice that it says that it went from the greatest of them to the least of them. That the word even reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. None of us is too great to humble ourselves before God. None of us is too great to humble ourselves before God. He is looking for a humble and contrite heart. Someone who is willing to say, Lord, I am not greater than you. Lord, I am not greater than the least in my kingdom. Even I should be willing to be an example to the people. Just this morning as we had a spiritual growth session with our session this morning, our session session, a meeting with our session. We were reading from Jeremiah 45. And we had this realization that really what it means to be a leader is to first and foremost be one who serves. And the king led his people in Nineveh by being willing to humble himself and also repent with them. What kind of leaders could you be in your lives, in your communities, in your household, to your neighbors, on your street, in your neighborhoods, 
in your workplaces, if you were willing to be the one that humbled himself or herself before others? What kind of wonderful, glorious example would you be demonstrating in Christ if you, who may be over somebody, you're the leader of somebody, were willing to be the first one to acknowledge when wrongdoing had occurred, when you had incurred the guilt. What a beautiful image and picture of Jesus in your life that might infect and change the life of another. And so this king in Nineveh was willing to submit himself also to God. And it changed his entire city. Even more so, I really love this. Let everyone turn. This is verse eight. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He didn't know if this was gonna work. King had no idea if repentance was gonna stay God's hand against Nineveh. But he trusted and believed that if God really is who he says he is, then he must move and act in line with his character. And so actually I wanna read this quote from A.W. Tozer. I know that I go to A.W. Tozer a lot from his book, Knowledge of the Holy, but it's just so good uh, in helping us understand who God is. Tozer writes this, he says, Kyrie Elison, Christ Elison, the church has pleaded through centuries. So Kyrie Elison means Lord have mercy on me. Christ Elison, Christ have mercy. And he says, the church has pleaded this through centuries. But if I mistake not, I hear in the voice of her pleading a note of sadness and despair. Her plaintive cry, so often repeated in that tone of resigned dejection, compels one to infer that she is praying for a boon she never actually expects to receive. Let me say that again. It is in a tone of resigned de dejection that compels one to infer that she is praying for a boon she never actually expects to receive. We live as though mercy is not something to be granted today. And the king of Nineveh is a good example to us because he responded as if there was an expectation that if they do this, God will respond. And so right now, in this moment of our lives, we have the opportunity to reach out for mercy. And God does not want to delay in giving it to us. In fact, earlier I read Psalm 86, but Paul also, or sorry, David also writes in Psalm 50 the exact same words. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you and shall glorify me. The Lord's desire is to give mercy, is to grant mercy. He wants you to come to him 
Acknowledge his merciful presence and he will give it. I think this is so important because if we live our lives acting as if God isn't merciful, as if he hasn't forgiven us, as if he isn't moving toward us, then we have no joy of his presence in our lives. We, we say, God, I'm going to live under my guilt, which inevitably leads to shame. It says, not only am I the sum of my actions, I identify as my actions themselves. You put this weight on yourself saying, I am evil, instead of I have done evil and God wants to remove that from me. He wants to forgive me. And so today we have the opportunity to gather together, to come to his table and partake in communion, a chance to remember that he moved toward us and gives us his mercy. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, restore to us the joy of our salvation, knowing that you saved us and you granted us peace because you are a merciful God and you do not give us what we deserve. Instead, you offer forgiveness, and you did so in the redemption through Jesus' blood. It was the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which you lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We love you, Lord. Amen.